go to the book of Habakkuk in the Minor Prophets. Some of you perhaps are saying Habakkuk. I've never heard of that book. It's a book that uh, probably you don't hear a lot of Bible study in, um, but it's on page 823 of my Bible, if you'll find your way there. But the Bible, the Old Testament, as most of you know, because we've gone through the Old Testament a couple times here, um, you have the major prophets. You have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And then from uh, Daniel to the end of the Old Testament is the minor prophets. And there is Habakkuk. Um, and uh, you'll find Amos, Micah. Uh, you'll find Nahum, that little book, and then the book of Habakkuk. And we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. And I believe that this book is going to speak to our hearts, especially in the day in which we are in. So I, I, and I, I just chose this book so I can hear the turning of pages of the Bible because I, <laughs> I, I love to hear that because in a lot of churches you don't hear that. Um, and it's a blessing for us to be in God's Word. It's a good time to remember to turn our ringers off our phones. We want to be free from distractions. And let's go to the Lord in prayer as you're making your way there. Lord, we do want to... Just give this time to study of your word. Uh, this little prophetic book is for us today. It speaks to us. And we want to make application. Lord, we want to, um, to see what you have to say when we wrestle with things. When we see the things going on around us that we don't understand. So I pray that our hearts would be uh, teachable, our ears open to you. That we'd be settled in our seats. And, Lord, that we would be, uh, Lord, benefited and blessed because we've been here studying your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we open up this short book in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, his name means one who embraces. He does not identify himself by family lineage. We don't know his place of residency. Uh, The opening words of this book, he is referred to as a prophet And most scholars believe that this book was written in about 609 B.C. That's about four years before the Babylonian captivity would begin as Babylon came and took the uh, house of Judah away captive. This book may have been written shortly after the death of Josiah, the last godly king of Judah. As we read this short book, only three chapters long, this book is really, as I've already mentioned, is going to speak to us. It's going to be very practical for us because the prophecy, even though it's given about Babylon coming into Judah, the prophecy isn't so much emphasized. This is more of a narrative. This is a complaint towards God that the prophet has. And in chapter 1, the prophet is wondering, Lord, why are you happening or why are you allowing this situation to happen? And at the end of chapter 1, we're going to see he's really going to be wrestling. In chapter 2, he's going to be waiting to see how the Lord's going to answer him. And then in chapter 3, we find him worshiping as he is strengthened because of God's sovereignty. Some commentators have called Habakkuk the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. As I said, we don't know much about him personally. It has been suggested that not only was he a prophet, but perhaps he was a priest as well. Because at the end of the book, we will see that he writes to the chief singer with the string instrument. Some scholars have come to the conclusion that the prophet was a Levitical member of the temple choir. Now, Habakkuk is on the scene at the same time 
that the prophet Jeremiah was ministering there in Jerusalem. Jeremiah, he not only was a prophet, but we know from the opening of his book that he was a priest as well. And so by way of background, they give us a, a little understanding why he has this this complaint uh, as he's wondering, as he's wrestling. Uh, we know that Habakkuk here would be ministering at the time of King Josiah. Keep in mind, over 100 years before this time, that the 10 northern tribes, the house of Israel, went off into captivity because of their sin. The Assyrians came. The Assyrians were brutal. They were the powerhouse of the day. They came to, into that area of the 10 northern tribes that took them away captive. They would put fish hooks in their mouths. The Assyrians were brutal. Um, and so that took place in 722 B.C., there were 19 kings of the house of Israel, as you read First and Second Kings. Every single one of those kings were idol worshipers. They, they were terrible kings. Now, Judah in the south, the house of Judah, had some kings that were godly kings. And as you read about them in First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, uh, shortly after the ten northern tribes were taken off into captivity, again in 722 B.C., the Assyrians made their way towards Jerusalem. They surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Shennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, starts to threat Hezekiah and the people there that are locked inside the city walls of Jerusalem, telling them to surrender. And it looked like they were going down. And the godly king, Hezekiah, who was ruling at that time, would take the threats that were written to him, and he would lay it out in the house of the Lord, and he prayed. Well, the Lord sent an angel to, that destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. And Isaiah writes about that in, book, uh, in chapter 37 of his book. The Assyrians would begin to decline in power. In chapter 39 of Isaiah, it is Hezekiah after that, he would host some envoys, some ambassadors from a faraway little empire that was called Babylon. It's about 90 years before this time that Habakkuk's prophecy. And Hezekiah was told by Isaiah, you know, what's going to happen is Judah's going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. And they will take your sons off uh, to Babylon. And they will be eunuchs in the palace of Babylon. It's not going to happen in your day, Hezekiah, but it is going to happen. Well, you read about that in Daniel chapter 1, 605 B.C., about four years after this prophecy that we're going to read, uh, this book, Daniel and his three friends are taken into captivity, Hanani, Mishael, Azariah. Uh, a lot of people know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. But after the reign of Hezekiah, uh, as God spared Jerusalem, his son Manasseh comes to become the king of Judah. And he reigned longer than any other king in Judah, and he was the worst of the kings. He was terrible. He plunged Judah deep into idol worship. He plunged the nation deep into occultic practices. He brought idols into the temple proper and into the temple itself. They were, had gotten so far away from the Lord that they were even sacrificing their children on the arms of Moloch there in the Gehenna Valley just south of the temple. Manasseh would end up passing on, and his grandson Josiah would come on the scene, 640 B.C. He's only eight years old when he began to reign. 
And when you read 2 Kings chapter 22 and 2 Chronicles 34, in the 18th year of his reign, he orders that the temple be cleaned up, be repaired. Well, the high priest Helkiah finds a copy of the law, the copy of the scriptures, and he brings it out. He blows the dust off of it. Can you imagine in our nation if there is no Bibles and, and only one copy was found and it was read to the president or something? Well, that's what was taking place. Here that the king, he hears the scriptures being read to him, and it quickened his heart. He was touched so deeply that he says, so wonder that we're in trouble and going through the difficulties that we're going through. So he would order that there be spiritual reforms. He restores temple worship. He restores the true sacrifices that were to take place as prescribed in the book of Leviticus. He would order that the Passover be celebrated once again. And the scriptures, as you read it very carefully, indicate that it was a time of reforms, but it really wasn't a national revival that it, it gripped the hearts of the people. Now, fruit came out of that time, that period, because Daniel and his friends grew up during that time, they're young teenagers, when they're taken off into captivity by Babylon, and you see their dedication to the Lord throughout the book of Daniel. But Jeremiah, as he was on the scene, he would write in chapter 3 of his book that Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense. It was just kind of going through the motions as uh, Josiah made these reforms. And in chapter 3 of the book of Jeremiah... Judah was rebuked by the Lord from not learning from your sister Israel that was taken off into captivity because they refused to repent of their idol worship and, and turning to false gods. Well, Josiah, he ends up getting killed, 609 B.C., about this time that Habakkuk is writing this, that uh, we see that what happened was Josiah, he goes up to the valley of Megiddo, north of Jerusalem, he ends up being killed by Necho, king of Egypt. And it would be the last four kings of Judah who were Josiah's sons. One was a grandson that would reign. And they were idol worshipers. And the people went right back into idol worship. They would ignore the warnings of Jeremiah the prophet. That they were to repent. As they would come and warn the religious leaders and the civil leaders. That if you don't, there's going to be death and devastation and destruction like you've never seen before. And that, of course, would take place. So Habakkuk at this time, before the captivity of 70 years of Babylon would begin, he's writing this perhaps after the godly king Josiah is killed. So let's begin to look at this book as we read in verse 1, that the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw... O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. So Habakkuk begins again with this cry, with this complaint. Lord, how long shall I cry to you? And Lord, don't you hear? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Or at least felt that way? And why was the prophet saying that? Well, we continue reading in verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Habakkuk says, you've shown me these things. I see them all around me. The things that are going on in Judah. The violence, the injustice, the contention 
um, the, the corruptness that's taken place. It's all around me. And why don't you save? I'm crying out to you. And it seems like you, you don't hear. And I think that a lot of us, if most of us, have had those kinds of thoughts or feelings. We can feel that way when we look around us at what's going on, when we see what's going on around us in our culture, in our nation, in the world. You see, even back in Habakkuk's day, Judah was marked with violence and how we see it increasing. Lawlessness, Jesus said, will abound in the last days. It's very clear as you read the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, the prophets that even spoke to the house of Israel uh, before they went into captivity, that God's people were living in such an ungodly way that there was violence. Uh, we read that the judges were corrupt. The civil leaders were corrupt. The religious leaders were leading the people down the wrong way into that which was false. People were getting ripped off, particularly the poor. And as I said, before this time, the people were sacrificing their children on the arms of Moloch. And there was immorality, great immorality that was taking place. They had gotten so far away from the ways of God because they had forgotten God. And you can read all about that as you go through the historical books of the Old Testament and the prophetic books. There was a form of religiousness. I mean, they talked about sacrifices and burning incense and even the Sabbath and all of that. But they were burning incense and sacrificing to false gods, that which wasn't true. And, and there was that form of religiousness that they turned to, not turning to the true and living God. Even today, as we see that more and more churches, unfortunately, are forsaking the scriptures, are forsaking the truth of the word of God. We look around and we see it and we hear about it and we're concerned about it. When you read Psalm 73, written by Asaph, Asaph was the worship leader during the time of David and Solomon. And he writes how he was in agony when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says the wicked violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. And the psalmist writes, when I thought how to understand it, it was too painful for me. And Asaph and Habakkuk and us today, we can certainly feel that way. We look around and we see what's going on in our culture, in our world, in our communities. The violence, the corruption, the injustice. We think, why is this happening? The world is getting more confusing. The world is getting darker. We're being told to accept that which the Bible calls evil. To not only embrace it, but we're to celebrate it. There can be a form of religiousness, but it's not according to truth. And Paul would write about that in 2 Timothy chapter 3, some of the last words of Paul the Apostle before he was executed. He said the last days will be perilous times. There'll be lovers of self, those with a misdirected love. There are going to be those of corrupt minds and counterfeits. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they'll have itchy ears. They'll be turned away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And we certainly see that taking place. And we cry out at times, Lord, how long? I know that I do. When I see the things and watch the news and I think, Lord, come quickly, Maranatha. How bad is it going to get, Lord? But we can cry out to God, not only because of the world around us, but listen, 
because of the difficulties and the sufferings and the storms that happen to us. In the Synoptic Gospels, there's an account of Jesus with his disciples in a boat. Most of you know it. And a terrible storm came up. I mean, it was bad. Those disciples, uh, several of them that grew up on the Sea of Galilee, were fishermen. This storm was so bad that they were terrified. Luke's gospel tells us that this storm came down on them. Mark tells us that the waves were crashing into them, filling the boat up with water. Jesus is asleep in the boat. And keep in mind that, that God's whole program was in that boat. Our Savior, who was going to die for the sins of the world, was in that boat. Our salvation was in that boat. The future church was in that boat with the disciples. And it looked really bad. They're going down and they wake Jesus up and they said, Don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus would wake up. He would rebuke the storm. And immediately it tells us that the wind stopped and it was calm. And then he turned to his disciples and he said, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? I think when I initially read that story in the Gospels, I think, how could Jesus be asleep in the boat with it filling up with water? I think it shows his humanity. He was a man. Matter of fact, he refers to himself as the Son of Man over 80 times in the Gospels, identifying with his humanity more than any other element in his personality. So remember this. Guys, when you come home and you're exhausted because you've been working hard to provide for your family or moms too or single parents, as you're providing for them and paying the bills, as you're raising your kids in the ways of the Lord, as you're perhaps ministering to an elderly parent that, that it takes a lot of work, or you're ministering to others that need help, and at the end of the day, you're exhausted, remember that Jesus can relate to you. He was exhausted, and he falls asleep because he had been ministering to the people, bringing all kinds of healing to them. He says, let's get in a boat. He falls asleep, and not only was he tired, but he would hurt, and he felt pain, and he was hungry, and he wept. And there is Jesus sleeping as we see his humanity. When he rebukes the storm, we see his deity. And maybe you're here. And there's a storm that's come down on you. And the winds of adversity are blowing against you. And troubled waters are rising around you. And you think, Lord, are you sleeping? And Lord, don't you hear my cry? And Lord, don't you see? And I want you to know that he does see. And he hears you. And he is with you. He promises he'll never leave you or forsake you. And to know that he is working. Because as we read in verse 5, the Lord begins to answer the prophet he says, look among the nations and watch and be utterly astound. For I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe, though it was told you. 
The Lord responds to the prophet's complaint. I'm doing the work and know that God will work in our lives, in your life, and is doing the work in our world and doing the work in our nation. Now, he tells Habakkuk that I'm working, but not in the way that you think I should. Isaiah would write in chapter 55 of his book, the Lord's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and the Lord says my ways are higher than your ways, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him. The problem has been that I have. There have been times where I've said, Lord, I'm going to be your counselor. And in this situation or what I see going on around me, this is what you should do. And Lord, you need to deal with them in this way. And I realize how foolish it is to give God my counsel. It doesn't mean that we can't give him our hearts, our hurts, our requests, our supplications, our desires. But then to trust in the Lord and how he is working, even when it is in the way that we, you know, uh, don't think that he should be working or, or his timing is off or, Lord, you should do it this way. Habakkuk, I'm working and it's true today. As we see God's answer to the prophet and how he is working, verse 6, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity uh, proceed from themselves. Their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. In verse 9, they all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold. They heap up earthen mounds and seize it. And then his mind changes and he transgresses. He commits offense, ascribing this power to his God, little g. I'm not indifferent, Habakkuk. I'm not asleep. I do see. I am doing something. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to use the Chaldeans, or that is the Babylonians, to come into the land, just as Isaiah told Hezekiah 100 years ago, and take the young man of Judah off into captivity. The treasures, the instruments of the temple, I'm going to use them, Nebuchadnezzar, and the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment against Judah. And at this time, that Babylon had risen to be the world-dominating power. They had taken the Assyrian capital, Nineveh, fulfilling the prophecy of Nahum that is before this book. And a few years later, after this prophecy of Habakkuk, Babylon would defeat the Egyptians along with what was left of the Assyrians at the Battle of Shar Shemes, a famous battle. The commander of that army of Babylon was a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. Of course, we know about him as we read the book of Daniel. While he's defeating the Egyptians at this battle, he gets word that his father, the king of Babylon, has died. So he has to hurry back to Babylon to secure the throne. It's 605 B.C., four years after this, this book uh, of Habakkuk. 
He stops in Jerusalem to take Daniel and the other young man away captive. There would be two more deportations, attacks on Judah. 597 B.C., the prophet Ezekiel is taken off into captivity, and he begins to prophesy. And then in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he destroys Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. And a little side note here, as we read verse 11, it's speaking of Nebuchadnezzar. He was very prideful, but God would break him. You can read about that in Daniel chapter 4. And here is Habakkuk's response in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours. A person more righteous than he. He can't believe it. How can you use the Babylonians who are more wicked than we are to judge our own people? It isn't fair. You ever felt that way? Maybe towards someone or someone's. Why are they being blessed? I've had devotions. I pray. I try to live for you, Lord. I'm in church. I'm serving. But they're not. Why do they seem to be blessed? Why do they get the promotion? Why did they get that relationship? How can you just use them? And they become victorious over your people. How can you use the Babylonians? And in verse 14, why do you make men like fish of the sea and like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them, their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. And then as we finish chapter 1, shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? And now, not only do we see him complaining, wondering here, now he's really wrestling. He's really wrestling in what God is doing. And know this, that our wondering in life what God is doing will lead to wrestling, where we're just really wrestling with the Lord on things. And what do we do during those times? Well, we're going to see that we're going to learn from Habakkuk as we go into chapter 2. You don't want to miss it. Really, really important in the day in which we're in. Because I would bet most of us, if not all of us, that you may be looking around and wondering. Or things that are taking place in your life, you're wondering, you're really wrestling, Lord, why? How come? Why them? Why is this taking place? Lord, don't you see? Lord, don't you care? And we're going to learn how important it is that during that time that we set our watch and we go to the Lord and that we desire to hear from him because the Lord wants to speak to us. He wants to speak to us. His truths. And to know this, that God says to you and to me that I am working. I am working a work in your day. Trust me. Look to me. 
And next week we're going to learn, you don't want to miss it, to set our watch, to see what the Lord will say to us. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this incredible book that's before us that oftentimes gets missed. But I do pray that we would be ones that as we find ourselves in that place, like the prophet here, wondering, wrestling, not understanding, that we can fall back on things that we do understand, that you are working and your promises are true for us. And Lord, that you care about us. Your ways are not our ways. Your ways are much higher. So Lord, bring us to the point where we're just trusting you and knowing that you're working all things for good for those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And when we are confronted with that, looking around us or what's happening to us that we don't understand, Help us to fall back on what we can. That is your everlasting love. You promise you'll never leave us or forsake us. That it would be a time where we draw close to you. Not pull away from you. And Lord, look to you in everything. For your compassion, your goodness, your comfort, your strength, your wisdom that you desire to give to us. As we come to the communion table and hold the elements, Lord, we hold them in our hands, remembering what Jesus did for us in this new covenant. The communion table is for the believer, not just if you belong to this church. If you're a believer, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But if you're here or you're watching and you've never come to Jesus Christ, he is your salvation. He went to a cross and died for your sins and rose again. And the Bible is very clear as we come in faith, as we turn to him and call out on the name of Jesus for forgiveness, believing he's the son of God who rose from the grave, that we will be saved. And you can do that right now. Today's the day of salvation. You can pray, Jesus, I come. You did the work on the cross. You cried out, it is finished. You died for my sins, me a sinner. Forgive me. And I believe that you are the Son of God who rose from the grave in your life. And I ask that you would sit upon the throne of my life as my Lord and Savior. I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you that I have a living hope that comes through your resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. And as the